This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, increasing mental health support in the classroom, the difficult end-of-life conversations, and modernizing your local library. But we begin with shrinkflation. Kind of sounds like something good, yes? The shrinking of inflation? No. In fact, far from it. According to a recent Ipsos poll, 84% of Canadians are really worried about shrinkflation as grocery items get smaller while costs don't budge. This in spite of the fact that there have been improvements lately on the inflation front. Here to help us understand and combat shrinkflation, and let me tell you, in this case, size does matter, is Laurie Campbell, Director, Client Financial Wellness, Bromwich and Smith. Welcome to the feed, Lori. So great to have you with us. Oh, my pleasure, Anne. So I took a peek at the Ipsos survey. One thing that stood out for me, shrinkflation is here to stay. Is it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, let's face it, uh, where companies can reduce the packaging or the size or the number of any product uh, that they're, they're actually uh, you know, selling, they're not going to change and go back. Here's what I find interesting. The definition of shrinkflation. Well, the definition of shrinkflation, everyone thinks that might be a good thing. You know, inflation is shrinking. But what it's telling us is that companies keep reducing the price of a product that you're purchasing, but the cost doesn't go down. Uh, you know, famous examples, of course, paper products, candy, chips, snacks, cookies, all of those things. Um, we've seen downsides over the years, um, you know, so a bag of chips is not a bag of chips, <laughs> as you saw even 10 years ago. It's, it's shrunk that much. So what is this in an effort to do? Is it to make grocers look good by maybe not raising prices for the items, instead thinking they can kind of slip one past us and, oh, here the item is smaller and fewer fewer cookies in the bag or or fewer chips in the bag? Are they, do they think we're kind of stupid? Probably. <laughs> and the reality of it is it's so subtle in some cases. It may be an ounce that it goes down uh, as far as uh, any weighted product, so it's not specific uh, to the amount that, that you're losing. But over time, you, you, you put the packaging together and you realize that it's, it's, it's a huge difference. And why are they doing this? Well, it's simply over pro- it's profit. You know, if you can put less chips in a bag or less cookies in a box or whatever the case is, and you can charge the same amount, well, your profits, you know, go up uh, because you're not not giving the consumer as much. And in some cases, the manufacturer or the grocer is raising prices and making the size smaller. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a good example is like laundry detergent pods, for example. You know, um, you normally would get 40 in a in a package. Now it goes down to 38. It's not that obvious. You might not notice right away, but then you start to realize that, hey, am I being duped here? I'm paying the same amount, if not more, for a product, and I'm not getting as much. Can shrinkflation interrupt the flow of the the product? For instance, you mentioned the, the laundry pods. What if they actually shrunk the pods themselves so that they were less effective, but they were able to make more money off of them. I mean, that just doesn't seem right. Yeah, and, you know, they probably are not going to change the product 
so much, you know, uh, as they are going to change uh, the amount of that product that you get. Because, you know, we all have our favorites. You know, you have your favorite chips, your favorite cookies. And so they're not going to mess with that necessarily, but they are going to mess with how many you get. And so, you know, that's, that's the, the downside. They probably don't want to mess with the product because, you know, let's face it, if, it, if something's not as effective or it doesn't taste the same, you're not going to continue to buy it. So that's the way they're kind of sneaking this past us. And as consumers, we need to be uber aware of, of you know, um, how this impacts us. And is there really anything we can do? It's, it's a difficult thing. You know, you may have to change products because you may find that it's just turning into a ripoff for you. So let's talk about the effects, first of all. So one in five Canadians, according to Ipsos, say that their weekly grocery bill, so about 20% of people asked, their weekly grocery bill has increased by at least $100 a week. That's $5,200 a year. And this is why we're seeing so many Canadians now, um, you know, impacted in so many different ways. I mean, we talk about, so we talk about inflation. And we see that inflation has started to go down because interest rates have climbed. But really, springflation is part of inflation, isn't it? And we're not seeing that that change. We're seeing this problem with shrinkflation continue. So these Canadians that are out there spending money for, for basic needs like groceries are paying a huge amount more because they're not getting the same product. Over half of Canadians are still worried they might not be able to feed their families. This is Canada. That is a very disturbing statistic. Yes, very disturbing. And if you go to, uh, if you if you look at it, the food banks today, they're desperate for donations. Um, they're their clientele has increased immensely over the last year. People that are, you know, struggling, you know, call them the working poor, trying to make ends meet, and can't because this is a daunting situation with these costs rising and incomes not rising to, to match these costs. Is there a watchdog, a Canadian watchdog that oversees manufacturers? So, I mean, that's really the source of, of what we're talking about, the, where it begins. The manufacturer makes a determination that they're going to make their packaging smaller, fewer items in the package. Is there anybody overseeing this? I have never known of anyone overseeing this in Canada. And... Um, you know, what does it mean? It means obviously looking, the watchdog is us, consumers, um, you know, to make sure that we understand what we're getting for our money and looking at ways of managing better. I mean, in Canada, there's no watchdog that I, I know of, um, but other countries do have some watchdogs that are looking over um uh, you know, shrinkflation, such as Scotland, they've, they've done, you know, some, some review of this type of thing that's going on. But in Canada, there really isn't anything. I don't know anything in the U.S. because it's a problem in the U.S. as well. From your perspective, uh, when things settle down inflation-wise here in this country, when the, when the, the numbers go down to a point where the, the Bank of Canada would like to see them and, and the rest of Canada would like to see them at a more comfortable level, will... I mean, I've, I think I know the answer already, but will manufacturers go back to their the size that we've come to know and love and at the same price? You know, prices may go down, but, but the size is not going to change. Once they've made these, once they've implemented these changes and they've gotten away with it because, let's face it, consumers don't have any choices, really, when it comes to uh, their purchasing items. Um, 
you know, other than going bulk and, and uh, going to uh, places like, you know, big box stores that they might be able to get you know, larger family size products. We're stuck with this, and, and that's a very difficult situation to be in. It means we all have to watch our money. We all have to be very uber diligent on how we spend. And how we consume, that's for sure. Lori Campbell, Director, Client Financial Wellness, Bromwich & Smith. Always a pleasure, even when it's bad news like shrinkflation. Thank you, Lori. Thanks so much, Ann. Coming up next, the warning about fentanyl from York Regional Police and Public Health. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. This past weekend, three people died of a suspected drug overdose in Markham. York Regional Police believe these three deaths and an overdose where the person ended up being hospitalized are connected to the consumption of fentanyl. We will hear from York Region Public Health in a moment about the presence of fentanyl and other toxic substances in the unregulated drug supply here in York Region. But first, we're joined by Detective Sergeant Rich Gaudet, the Guns, Gangs and Drug Enforcement Unit, York Regional Police. Really appreciate you joining us on the feed. Thank you so much, Rich. So let's talk about why you and the Guns and Gangs and Drug Enforcement Unit, York Regional Police, why were you involved in these overdose deaths? Thanks for having me, Ann. Um, well, I'll just go back a little bit. So between uh, Friday, April 28th and Saturday, April 29th, uh, York Regional Police responded to three calls uh, related to drug poisonings um, in a community in Markham. Uh, four people in total were poisoned, and three of them sadly died. Uh, one was treated from hospital and released. Um, at that time, the Five District Criminal Investigations Bureau uh, started a death investigation um, into this occurrence, and very quickly we realized that um, it is abnormal for having that number of overdoses in that small area. So the Guns, Gangs, and Drug Enforcement Unit was called in to be engaged to support that investigation. And what is um, it that so, you're looking for when you are investigating th- from your perspective? So from our perspective, what we're going to do uh, from Guns and Gangs is we're going to try to determine exactly where the fentanyl was sourced, uh, because at this point we believe that it was a fentanyl poisoning, uh, and we're going to address uh, the illicit production and supply and distribution of it. So if we, we're going to try to find out where those drugs came from. You've had some success in previous cases. Uh, let's talk about that. And, and if I may say, what you have done, you and the Guns, Gangs and Drug Enforcement Unit and other members of YRP have saved lives. Absolutely. So York Regional Police, we support the York Region Opioid Action Plan. It's a four-pillared approach. Uh, one of those pillars is enforcement, and that's what my unit does. Um, and we do it very well. And recently, we've had a Project Monarch, uh, which York Regional Police was the lead agency on, and Project Manipenny, which we participated in with the Toronto Police. Um, and both of those projects, there were gun and gang projects. We seized a lot of firearms, but a large component of those projects uh, were large seizures of fentanyl. Um, and even Project Monarch, we saw fentanyl uh, pressed as candies to resemble candies. We had cars, and I forget the other um, candy that it was pressed as, uh, but they were pressed in the type of candies to make it more attractive for the buyer. So we're always trying to do um, enforcement to try to rid our streets of these substances. Because we had a cluster, three people died, and one was treated for an overdose in hospital, do you consider this to be 
a crisis in Markham, in York Region? I certainly wouldn't say that it's a crisis. Um, I think we've um, enhanced our response to it. We've dedicated uh, more resources into the investigation of opioids. Um, You know, um, opioid uh, poisonings um, are obviously on the rise uh, across the country. Uh, York Region is a large region, is home to a lot of citizens, so we haven't, uh, we're not immune um, to the same things that are happening uh, across the country. You know, this may be a very naive question on my part, but why do people use and perhaps overdose on fentanyl, and where are they buying it from? Um, well, that I mean, I can, certainly can't speak to where everybody's buying it from. We do know that um, there's a number of uh, people that sell fentanyl on our streets, um, you know, and, and I'd, I'd, I've spoken to dozens of fentanyl addicts in my career, and a lot of the individuals I've spoken to uh, were overprescribed opioids due to uh, an injury, uh, a car crash, or a workplace injury, or just any other injury, and they get hooked to that drug. Rich, what's it like for you and other members of your unit to step into a situation like this? These are three lives lost, and one that may be severely affected because of the overdose, but three lives gone in, the, in a flash. What's that like for you to try to make sense of, to also get clarity in terms of, of, of the police aspect of it? Well, I can, I can tell you that, um, you know, we've been working nonstop uh, since Sunday. Um, I've got a lot of officers uh, that are dedicating their time to trying to determine the source of these drugs. Uh, but we also take a holistic approach to it. Um, you know, we engage in timely and targeted intelligence-led enforcement against drug traffickers, um, especially when opioids are, you know, so causing such uh, devastation in our community. Um, so we're hoping that through targeted enforcement, we can stem that tide of dangerous and illegal drugs, um, and we're doing our best. Detective Sergeant Rich Godet, the Guns, Gangs, and Drug Enforcement Unit, York Regional Police, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And now to fentanyl itself, what is it? Why is it potentially lethal when it's mixed with other opioids or if it contains contaminants, what can happen to the user? What triggers a fentanyl overdose? What are the signs and symptoms? With these details and more, we welcome Dr. Richard Gould, Associate Medical Officer of Health for York Region. Dr. Gould, it's great to have you with us here on the feed. You've been quoted as saying recently, York Region is experiencing a drug poisoning emergency. What do you mean by that? Well, it, it's actually been a problem that's been going on for, unfortunately, uh, a while. It's not a sudden uh, change, um, but like Ontario and other parts of the country, the number of overdoses, fatal and otherwise, have increased uh, quite a bit over the last few years. Um, and um, uh, so it's a, I guess it's not a sudden crisis. It's something that's ongoing and continues to be a serious concern. Can we talk about fentanyl itself? Can you give us a bit of an overview? What exactly is it and why is it potentially a killer? Well, it's a strong-acting uh, opioid. Um, it's, it's actually been used, it is a prescription medication in many, uh, for pain relief, and it's used in that way. But uh, when it's purchased on the unregulated market for uh, drug use, it can, you know, one of the problems is it can be contaminated with other things. The potency of it is unknown. And plus, it's a very potent uh, opioid itself. Uh, It has very strong action. 
Um, and so that in itself is, is a concern. But again, in the uh, unregulated market, um, you don't know what you're getting uh, in terms of the strength. And it's that unknown uh, and change, or I guess the variability in terms of the dose uh, plus its potency that can cause overdoses. And if I may ask, why do people use fentanyl? Well, um, well, first of all, it's it's uh, it's hard not to use it uh, if you're purchasing drugs from the unregulated system. It's just made its presence uh, in all the uh, drugs that are purchased or the opioids that are purchased uh, in the unregulated mo- uh, market over the last, I guess, one two years. Uh, you know, it can be about eighty percent of the opioids out there um, are have a large a large portion of it is fentanyl. So um, it's hard to avoid. Uh, it's also sought out because of its strength, its potency. Um, it can uh, augment the high. It also can be very uh, helpful in terms of reducing or limit, uh, uh, withdrawal symptoms too. So um, that's why it's being sought out. Plus, it's just hard to avoid. Can we talk about the symptoms of an overdose? Mm-hmm. Well, the main thing is um, it's going to cause a slowing of the of, of, of uh, respiration of breathing. Um, that's its main, you know, it's, it's its main, I guess, unwelcome side effect. And uh, if it's high enough dose, uh, it will stop a person from breathing completely. So that's the main thing. Is so a person will get certainly drowsy from it, um, but if there's enough of it. Their, their breathing rate is going to slow down. They're not going to be able to breathe. Uh, they may be, they'll become unconscious. Um, and you may see that depending on, um, you know, they may have a bluish tinge, et cetera, because they're not getting oxygen uh, into them. So uh, eventually, uh, with that depression of breathing, it will be fatal. Dr. Gould, the reason we're having this conversation today is that uh, there were three deaths and an overdose where the person ended up being hospitalized connected to the consumption of fentanyl. This is what police are suspecting at this point. This happened in Markham last weekend. York Mm -hmm. Region was stunned by the news. How did York Region Public Health respond to this? Well, yeah, it is an unusual situation to have... um, a cluster of deaths uh, like that three in the, uh, together in kind of one general area. Um, but unfortunately, I mean, we do monitor what's happening in terms of emergency room hospitalization and deaths uh, from a variety of sources. And unfortunately, you know, one or two deaths uh, a week is not that unusual. We've had um, reported deaths of up to three during a week, thereabouts. Um, so sadly, it's, 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 it's not... It's not new in terms of deaths occurring uh, from opioid use in in New York region. This is unusual just because of, as I say, of the the location and the and the number of people at a one person at one time. Um, I don't know. I, we don't think it's going to necessarily be an ongoing trend, um, but certainly we do know that the risk of overdose is there, uh, and and the deaths continue to occur and we're trying to deal with those. Our response mainly is when we do get more information about uh, if there's an area where uh, there seems to be an increased risk, um, then we, we, we uh, try to get more naloxone out into that general area to people who are using drugs to emphasize its importance and to get it out there. And, and we're 
collecting more information from York Regional Police to get a little bit more background about what happened there. Dr. Richard Gould, Associate Medical Officer of Health York Region, thank you so much for your time and your information. You're welcome. Next, how one company is helping families prepare for end-of-life care. Tina Cortez now with that story. Carly Hickey is the owner of Advanced Care and Emergency Planning Company, or ACE. Before we talk about ACE, Carly, tell us about your work as an RN. Thank you, Tina. Uh, I've been a registered nurse for 12 years in intensive care and most recently was a ICU clinical nurse educator. I've worked in Ontario between Ottawa and Toronto as well as St. John's, Newfoundland. And I have my Bachelor degree of Science in Nursing, a Master of Nursing with a Teaching Focus. I'm a Certified Nurse in Critical Care through the CNA. And I've published and co-authored manuscripts and presented at national conference uh, conferences. <clears throat> and now I'm pursuing ownership of a company. So tell us about how your career in nursing led you to ACE and end-of-life care. Well, my professional experience kind of blended with my personal experience. Um, when I was in nursing school, my mother was diagnosed with melanoma. It was a Clark Level 3 iceberg tumor, and this, of course, is shared with her permission. And at this time, my attention to the fragility of life was acutely sharpened. Um, and I think any family who has been touched by cancer is familiar with the weight of its sadness. But in a strange way, if there's a positive outcome, it can be a gift as well. And so, you know, the things that matter in life most are more focused. And so following this, I began my nursing career in ICU in 2010. And I quickly noticed a pattern in family social dynamics that families who were prepared who had those difficult discussions with their loved ones often had better coping and less complicated grieving than those who were unprepared. And then years later, my spouse, who is also an ICU physician, uh, we both lost two very close family members unexpectedly. And so we were ICU professionals, but now experiencing the bedside from the fam family's perspective. And so going back to the family's experience, those who were prepared tended to appear to have less guilt, less uncertainty, and a greater sense of confidence in their decision with guiding care rather than ambivalence. So let's talk a little bit about some of the specifics. How do you help a family plan for the unexpected, especially because it's such a difficult and emotional time? You're absolutely right. And what I say is timing for these difficult conversations is absolutely key. The scholarly literature currently says that these conversations should be initiated when a, when a patient has a terminal illness or a poor state of health or they have a close um, end-of-life approximation. And this includes a paper that I co-authored with the physician Dr. Quadro Kiermenteng out of Ottawa in 2021. However, Advanced Care Planning Canada recently released a poll from 2021 stating uh, the opinions of Canadians and their preferences for advanced care planning. And it actually showed a preference for early planning um, starting uh, in the 30s to 50 range. And so based on that, I really do think that we need to, instead of put a Band-Aid 
and treat a diagnosis that's in progress, we really need to step back, you know, 20 years earlier when we're in our 30s and 40s and really try to take care of our health now um, so that we can improve the longevity and quality of life in our older years. And so based on that, I have structured my discussions around four pillars. And the first starts with estate planning, legal planning, so getting your will, power of attorney in order, considering your financial health, because your financial health is a very close indicator of your actual health. We know that socioeconomics plays a role in one's health outcomes. So I get people thinking about that. I also get people thinking about a plan of how are they going to disclose to their family members how funeral funeral arrangements will be paid for? Do is it going to come out of a life insurance policy? Will they know to get it out of, you know, the sale of a home, for instance? Or maybe they don't have any money <clears throat> at that time and so it's going to be left to the children or the loved ones to pay for, which is not an expense that you want to come by surprise. And so, again, while these conversations are really difficult, I have seen the aftermath where families are grieving and then they have all of these various surprises or difficult obstacles to navigate. So just so I'm clear, when does the family or patient come to you? Is it in, you know, before anyone is ill? It's something that you should think about, as you said, in your 30s or 40s? I am currently focusing on encouraging the sandwich generation to start thinking about this. Mm -hmm. And the sandwich generation are parents who are both raising kids as well as starting to care for their aging older parents. And, you know, health issues just start to degenerate over time. And, you know, the hearing loss or high blood pressure is just the start of these illnesses that lead to greater things. And so, That's why I say to the sandwich generation, if you're paying attention to your parents' health early and we start getting their wills, their power of attorney documents, all of these things tidied, then we don't have a major bottleneck later on when things can be really stressful. I do have, on my social media, I do provide a lot of education and I did come up with a list of really people who are in urgent need or high priority of an advanced care plan. And those are people of any age with health frailty, terminal illness, a neurodegenerative disease, um, multiple comorbidities or multiple illnesses or diagnosis, Um, people who have a poor family social dynamic. So if you have parents that you don't get along with or siblings that you don't get along with, you know, while this may inflame things, you can also get on the same page because grief plus difficult relationships doesn't make for a positive outcome. You know, also individuals who have high fall risks or blended families. Blended families are more common these days, but we also have to work out that you really need to have a will, you really need to have your beneficiaries sorted and things like that and have everyone on the same page um, for your wishes at a major health transition. Also, um, things to think of are individuals with assets in different countries, it is a executor's nightmare to have to manage assets that are located in a different country. And so trying to manage that if there's a pending illness or end-of-life scenario would be helpful. Also, larger complex estates and if there's any major financial liabilities or outstanding back taxes would be 
um, really good to, to start um, fixing that. And the reason is, if you don't do it, it all comes out with somebody with the executors of that will. So it sounds like if you do plan in advance, it allows you to focus on some of the other priorities, including finances. Absolutely. So going back to those four pillars that I um, kind of missed to finish, I do do talk about the legal aspects, the financial aspects. I pull in some health promotion, you know, things that people should look for based on current prevention guidelines from Canada's research. I also talk about active care management. So I ask questions like, what are your preferences around organ donation? What are your limitations for suffering? What are your, you know, if you had to live with chronic pain, is this acceptable to you? Do you believe in a very long life or do you believe in, um, you know, a quality of life? And all of these things must be captured because as a society, we have access to major advancements in biomedical technology and therefore life support. And so we've already answered the question, can we prolong life? We know we can, but should we? Is this in line with the individual's wishes? Is there a message for those who may be in this situation or as you suggested, perhaps that sandwich generation and is listening right now? What is your message to them? There's one quote that I really like. Um, it's called, it says, sometimes later becomes never. So it's important to do it now. And taking that first step is challenging. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. But I guarantee it will be significantly harder when there's a major diagnosis or health crisis in progress. Carly, if our listeners want more information about ACE, how can they contact you? I'm available on most social media uh, contacts. I also have a website, www.aceplanningco.com. You can get me, I'm pretty active on Instagram with a lot of education, Twitter, TikTok, um, and of course, email. But my website has all of my contact touch points. That's great. Thank you for your time today and for sharing this information and your expertise. Oh, you're very kind, Tina. Thank you for your time. Kevin Frankish with the province's plan to increase mental health learning and why the NDP is saying even more is needed. This week, Vaughn MPP and Education Minister Stephen Lecce let it be known that come September, mental health will become a priority and mandatory in the curriculum starting in grade 10. A step in the right direction. However, is it enough? Chandra Pazma is an NDP MPP for Ottawa West Nepean and the education critic at Queen's Park. She feels the announcement is overshadowed by what she calls the Ford government's underinvestment in mental health and joins me now from Ottawa. Hi, Ms. Pazma. Hi, Kevin. So tell me about that. Uh, first of all, your reaction to this announcement. Is it a step in the right direction? Absolutely. We know that kids are really struggling with their mental health. I hear it every day from teachers, from students, from parents across the province. The pandemic has been really hard on everyone's mental health. And so we definitely need more resources and more supports. And having more conversations about mental health can only be a good thing. But we also need to make sure that there's supports in place for when people are struggling with their mental health, that it's not just a conversation, but there's actually supports and resources that we can direct them to. 
there's many times that I do hear, I do hear it from college and university students, especially where there are programs that uh, have been put in place. However, it's almost universal to these programs. They, they, they complain these programs are not enough. They're over overused. They're, there's not enough resources. Uh, it only scratches the surface. So these resources are already being stretched in. What needs to be done along with adding mental health literacy to the curriculum? We need to make sure that there are actually enough mental health professionals to help children when they're struggling. Right now, less than one in 10 of our schools has regularly scheduled access to a mental health professional like a nurse or a psychologist or a social worker. And half of our schools have no access to those resources at all. So we definitely need people, caring adults in our schools that we can direct our children to when they're struggling. And then there needs to be those supports in the community as well. I've heard from many parents that they have tried to find therapy or other supports for their children, but the demand is so high and the, the services are so few and far between that there's just no one for them to turn to even when they can afford to pay out of pocket for those services. We in, in, you know, in the last, well, since the pandemic, we have seen mental health uh, resources come online uh, for free for, for many people, which has always been prohibitive for a lot of people is, is the cost of mental health help. So having this now into the curriculum, do you think that grade 10 is soon enough? Well, I know that throughout the past few years, my kids who are much younger than grade 10, their teachers have already been talking about mental health and have already been talking about strategies. I think it's great. We should be talking with, you know, even very young children about things that we can do to make ourselves feel better and to feel happier. Uh, it's important as we get older to talk about, you know, conversations about red flags that you should be looking out for in your friends and that it's important when someone is in distress that you tell a grown-up and you don't keep that to yourself. I think these are important throughout all the grades, but what's also important is making sure that those grown-ups are there to help the kids when they need it. The the curriculum comes September, of course. I mean, that, that that's uh, coming up uh, pretty quickly, and there, there's going to be I believe some elements of it in grade seven and eight as uh, as well. What else would you like to see? Uh, you've already spoken about the resources, but what else would you like to see within the schools and in the curriculum? Well, certainly what I hear from many parents and teachers and education workers is that one thing that's contributing to the stress is the conditions in our schools. Uh, classes are very crowded. We have a shortage of teachers and education workers. We're not seeing the investments that's allowing each child to get the supports that they need, whether it's one-on-one -on -one time with a teacher, whether it's assistance from an educational assistant. And that's definitely adding to the stress and anxiety levels in schools. Uh, making sure that kids are well supported in their learning is one way of addressing their mental health. We also know that many children uh, are acting out because they're not getting the supports that they need and because of the difficulty of the past few years. And so violence in our schools is definitely a concern. I hear from a lot of parents whose children are being bullied or who don't feel that their school is a safe place. And, you know, this is a vicious cycle when we don't invest in the mental health resources and then the mental health of some children suffers and they may lash out at classmates and then their mental health suffers because of that. So definitely investing in those mental health resources, 
bringing down the class sizes, making sure that the educational assistance and other special education supports are there for kids when they need it, helps bring down the temperature for everybody and allows them to, to thrive and succeed in a climate that won't be driving anxiety, that won't be driving stress. Should we be thinking more about the teachers as well and, and the, the rest of the educational staff in the schools uh, who are already complaining of their mental health being uh, stretched and they're going to be the ones who are supposed to be teaching this curriculum or, or applying this curriculum. What about what about the staff? Absolutely. And that's such a good point, Kevin, because we are seeing so many people who are resigning, uh, you know, early career, mid-career. These are not people who have served their full career and are retiring at the end of a long and satisfying career. It's people who who just cannot take it anymore. We're seeing an increase in the number of teachers and education workers who are going on long-term leaves for mental health issues. And the more that our schools are underfunded and understaffed, the more difficult those working conditions are. Uh, I hear from many teachers and education workers as well that the needs in schools are so high. You know, there's many children who have special needs, whether it's a disability or autism, who are uh, being sent to our schools without the proper therapy and supports in the communities and the teachers are being expected to fill in the gaps without the adequate special education funding for our schools. The oversized classes, the fact that kids are all over the map in terms of their learning after three years of pandemic-related disruptions, all of that together puts a lot of stress on teachers and education workers. And then unfortunately, we've seen the government repeatedly refuse to show them support and respect uh, throughout the past few years now in negotiations with the teachers. All of that adds to the stress and anxiety that teachers are feeling as well. We need to make sure that they're adequately supported, you know, in terms of wages and working conditions, in terms of the resources that are in schools, and yes, also mental health support for them so that they can seek mental health support when they need it. As a mental health advocate myself, um, I want I want to share something with you, and I'd like to get your reaction to it. One of the problems we have when it comes to any government, it's not, not just the Ford government, but any government, they throw Band-Aids out at situations like this, like mental health. They're literally closing the barn door after the horse has bolted. Most traumas uh, happen in your childhood, long before grade 10 for many children. And and these are the issues that come back out in your 30s, your 40s, and your 50s, and so on. And one of the things that, one of the reasons for this is we really don't teach our kids, whether it's at home or at school, how to really recognize their feelings and how to de-escalate, how to self-regulate, how to even just recognize those feelings and, and what they mean. Personally, I think that we should be starting in kindergarten in some way, some shape or form. And I know some schools already do that. But all this effort being put towards high school, well, by then, all we're doing is damage control rather than preventing serious mental health issues. Your thoughts? Absolutely. I mean, I've seen it with my own kids in the past few years, and probably like you, Kevin, these were not things that I learned in school growing up or things that my parents really emphasized, and I've seen the importance of having conversations with my kids about being able to distinguish your feelings and when you are sad versus when you are mad, 
being able to communicate what you are feeling and what you need right now. Those are incredibly important life skills and teaching them to our children will only help them to succeed. But I also see so many children in my riding of Ottawa, West Nepean and across the province who are in conditions that are also not great for their mental health because they are living in poverty and being sent to school without food in the morning. Uh, or, you know, they have an unstable housing situation where their family's not sure how they're going to be housed, or they're living in a shelter situation. And I would love to see us as a society address those conditions so that children have secure childhoods and they're growing up in the best possible conditions to set them down the right road for their whole life, including their mental health. Well, thank you so much uh, for this. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time, Kevin. Chandra Pazma, NDP MPP for Ottawa West Nepean, as well as the education critic at Queen's Park, speaking to me from Ottawa. One Aurora man is taking it upon himself to fundraise for youth mental health. Jim Lang with his story. Dealing with mental health takes all of us to be a part of the solution to all of the problems out there. Everyday people in York Region who live and work here but spend a lot of their free time raising money, raising awareness to help others. And I can't think of a better person to talk to than George Rappos, who lives and works in York Region, is a busy insurance agent. But when he's not working as an insurance agent, he's busy raising funds and awareness to help others in need to deal with their mental health. And George, why do you spend so much time and effort helping those who need a hand? Well, you know, Jim, I, I do, as yourself, I do have a couple of teenagers myself. My daughter's 17, my son 19. Um, you know, over the last few years, and I, maybe I could take this back when I started as a, an agent here in Newmarket. As you know, I'm a, a citizen of Aurora. My business is in Newmarket. I've always been involved with supporting uh, local uh, mental health initiatives uh, with the United Way for many years. Um, and then over the last, I think it was three years now, I made a decision to you know, break away from the United Way and, and, and work directly with a, an association, uh, a nonprofit that does a lot of good work in our community, and that is the Canadian Mental Health Association. So I, I connected with the folks over at the CMHA, and I explained to them you know, what I'm trying to accomplish here with youth mental health. Um, I've been around the youth pretty much all of my adult life. I've had the opportunity to coach uh, amateur sports, both uh, with my daughter and, and my son, and I've been around young people uh, pretty much all my adult life. And um, I think this is something that's uh, prevalent in our society. We have a lot of um, young people that um, are affected by, by, by mental illness, um, whether it's you know, acting out in school or acting out while you know, playing sports or with their friends. This is something that is prevalent in our society. About 20% of you know youth uh, are affected with some sort of mental health uh, or mental illness. Um, but I think one of the things that we have to understand is uh, there, there, there are two things that we have to look at here. One is mental health and one is mental illness. Mm-hmm. A lot of people kind of use the terms interchangeably and, and they're not the same. We all have mental health. You have mental health. I have mental health. We have physical health. Um, so men- mental health is, is basically how you how you take care of your, 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 well, your state of well-being, your emotions, your feelings. So we all have mental health. But mental illness is, is something else. Men, mental illness is a disorder that uh, it could be genetic or it could be environmental. Um, so uh, you could have a mental illness but have good mental health because you're taking care of your mental illness, okay? Yeah. There's some people, there's some people that have uh, a mental illness and obviously do not have good mental health because they're not taking care of 
their mental illness. So having young people, uh, having uh, two young kids, as I mentioned, my, uh, I have t- two teenagers. Uh, the pandemic over the last couple of years has really uh, made me think uh, introspectively on, on how we can help youth. Um, uh, you know, this might sound cliche, but our, our youth are the future. Uh, we cannot leave a generation of, uh, of people behind because we're not providing uh, proper medical attention to these folks. Well, George, you, you've raised a lot of money for the Canadian Mental Health Association of York Region and South Simcoe, but more importantly, you've educated a lot of listeners, a lot of people about mental health, and you're doing great work, George. I'm, I'm just an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Keep up the great work, and uh, hopefully a lot of people follow your lead and do the same thing. Absolutely. If there's, if there's any, if you can play a small part in raising awareness and helping those people in your community, you've done a great job. Thank you, George. Much appreciated. After the break, rediscovering the local library. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. The author of a new book about diversity is calling on school boards to change the curriculum. Shaliza Backus with the details. The Ontario curriculum is ever-changing and a lot of amendments have been made to it over the years to include a lot more diverse backgrounds and diverse education. While a lot has been done, there is still a long way to go. And joining me now to talk about this is author Robert Picard, who just published his first book called Gaudy. How are you, Robert? Hey, good afternoon. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, this book, it looks amazing. Why don't you tell us about it? Well, this book takes on the journey of a young girl from Jamaica and allows us to peer into her life as she migrates from Jamaica through to to the UK through to Canada. It starts off and helps us to understand what it means to have your life interrupted. She goes through a series of events that cause her to make some tough decisions. And like many immigrants, Uh, that have to make tough decisions before they leave their home country. She has to make one in order to make her way through the UK to Canada. Now, you said it's about a young girl. Are there any personal connections to this young girl? Yes, there are. There are personal connections. So Gadi is actually my mother. And so we ended up writing this book. Um, It was actually a product of the COVID season. And what actually started to end up happening was we... Uh, had a conversation with her and a series of re- recordings with her to help kind of capture her life and help us understand her life story. Those conversations ended up being about five hours of recorded material. And as we reviewed that material and took a look at it, we realized that there was clearly a story here that needed to be told and needed to be articulated. And so I took on the challenge of, of writing the book and using her life to, to write her story. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I think the silver lining of this whole entire pandemic is a lot of great work came out of the pandemic. Yes, I absolutely agree. People had time, right? Yeah. During the pandemic, it gave me a time to be able to uh, spend time with her, talk with her. And a lot of us, you know, we don't really have time to share and talk with our parents just with the hustle and bustle of every day. And so I was fortunate to be able to spend this time to be able to capture uh, the essence of who she was what it meant to grow up in Jamaica and and to be able to translate that into a book that could resonate. And it's interesting because especially here in Ontario, especially where we are here in the region, there are so many immigrant families. And a lot of those immigrant families, their ancestors have contributed to Canadian history and that hasn't been taught or highlighted in the curriculum maybe up until now. 
Yeah, you know, I agree. I mean, of course, I'm the product of an immigrant. And, you know, the story of leaving the place that you know and going to somewhere that you don't know to get something that you've never had is a story that a lot of us can, can uh, identify with. And, you know, with Gotti's story, it's really interesting because her decisions were born out of the fact that her parents died, you know, within six months of each other. And she's a teenager and she's in a family of nine siblings. And these group of kids now have to figure out what, how they go forward without parents. And they end up making some very tough decisions like a lot of, a lot of immigrants have to do. And so I don't think uh, God is any different in terms of types of decisions that folks make around the world in terms of where they want to be and how they want to run their lives. Yeah, that truly is like the immigrant come up story where they've had such difficult hardships, gone through so much in their lives, and they just want to make a better living for themselves and for their future families, which I think your mother has done. Yes, I agree. You know, she came through, like I said, she came through the UK. And, um, you know, before that, like I said, her her, uh, parents passed away when she was young. And their siblings made a tough decision to send her away. And she ended up being indentured for a while in order to be able to pay for her education. And so, you know, unlike Gadi, a lot of folks make very tough decisions and put themselves in difficult decisions in order to really get to a dream that they see in their mind's eye. And so Gadi was really no different. Uh, she was fortunate enough to be able to escape that and be able to migrate to, to the UK and go to Canada. But she was a dreamer and she was strong and she was aware and, and she understood that her constraints didn't define her. And so uh, we're happy to tell the story. Yes, that is 100% an amazing story to tell. And what are you hoping this book will do? Well, I mean, the primary goal for this book, I would say, is for us to understand that really God is all of us. And really anyone who has taken a chance, anyone who has decided to leave what they know and go somewhere else can identify with this story. This type of story where one is migrating and facing challenges and starting their life over from the middle really can apply to any time and any geography. What I'd also say, too, is that Gaudi also underscores and helps us celebrate the richness of Canadians, also specifically the richness of black Canadians and the contributions that they've made to Canadian society. So the underlying stories of migration really add to who we are as a people. You know, it makes up the fabric of Canada and helps us to understand, you know, how we should appreciate each other and give us a, gives us a glimpse of what West Indian immigrants are all about and, again, their contributions to, to Canada. Robert, thank you so much for sharing your story and your mom's story. She sounds like a remarkable woman. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Robert, if our listeners want to purchase the book or find you online, where can we go? Uh, The best place to go, I would say, would be Book, G-O-D-D-I-E book.com would be a great starting spot. Of course, anywhere where they sell books uh, across Canada, you you should be able to find this book quite easily. We've also just rolled out our new audio book with live actors as well. So uh, there's an opportunity to hear uh, Jamaican dialect and to hear uh, English actors and, and really get into the story on a deeper level. So go out and pick it up. I like that. Teaching Jamaican dialect, it goes beyond Wagwan, right? Absolutely. Way beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will definitely be checking that out. All right, Robert Picard, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Take care. Libraries are often described as quiet and not very exciting, but as Glenn Perkins discovered, it's the opposite at the Newmarket Public Library. 
After 17 years, the New Market Library has launched a vibrant new brand identity that invites curiosity and discovery. The move is an early step in modernizing library services. Tracy Munasami is the library CEO. Tracy, welcome to the program. Tell me about the changes. Yeah, so the library has undergone a rebranding process. It's more than just a logo, it's a brand that represents what we are to the community. Uh, we want to be more energized and engaging, and we want to be a more welcoming and inclusive space for experiences in the community, and our new branding represents that. What's the thinking behind the rebranding? So we received some feedback from the community that the library is tired and very beige, uh, and so we want the community to be proud of their library, and we want it to be fun and engaging. This is where fun learning happens. And so the library is for the community, and we wanted to reflect that based on the community feedback and our new branding. There are a number of resources that people can use to find information, including online, radio, television, and print. It must be very challenging to keep the library operating. The funny thing is, is that um, whenever people tell me about the kind of resources that they're using at home in their own spaces, they can actually get for free at the library. So things like we already have, you can borrow magazines from the library, like digital copies. We also have technology that you can borrow. We have loaning laptops and Wi-Fi hotspots. And then we also have our library of things. And so people can borrow things that might be too expensive to own on your own or that might take up too much space. So right now we're featuring our gardening selection, um, which has garden tools, a whippersnipper, power washer and all kinds of things that can help you get your garden spruced up this spring. So it's about listening to what the customers in the community need. It's about observing how the customers are using our library and just being tapped in and seeing and listening and responding. Tracy Munasami is the CEO at the New Market Public Library. Tracy, with the rebranding, will we see more on social media about the library? Absolutely. So we'll be posting on social media, but we'll also be out in the community a lot more. So if you see us at a farmer's market or at your local recreation center, don't hesitate to come by and say hello, renew your library card, and look for a new experience coming to your library. When we think of libraries, they're usually quiet, stuffy, sometimes boring places. But from what you're telling me, New Market Library will be the opposite. Yes, well, we're trying to be that. And we still have quiet, steady spaces. There is no reason for anyone to feel like they can't come here and plop down for an afternoon and study for an exam. But we do have places like our Maker Hub, which is really meant for interactive learning with technology. We also have spaces on our children's floor with activities for families to take advantage of and to be able to come and experience the library and experience being out of your home and just connecting with other people in the community. That's important coming out of the pandemic to be able to visit the local library and interact once again with people and participate in programs. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people are really happy to be able to come back to the library and connect with other people and connect with the staff as well. Tracy, tell me on why I should come to the New Market Library. I think the number one reason, and it's really interesting to hear feedback from people, but a lot of people stopped coming back to the library because of library overdue fines. And so this year we made the decision to 
for Go the Fines, we've gone fine free, and so if you are harboring any ill will to your local library because of a book you may have misplaced, don't worry about it. We're welcoming everyone back into the doors of their New Market Public Library. Tracy Munasami, CEO, New Market Public Library, thank you for joining us on the feed. You're welcome. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.